Let's pray as we start. Father, we don't take for granted the privilege we have of being able to meet together freely this morning and with your word in our laps, meeting without fear of our lives, or persecution particularly. And we thank you for the privilege we have of being able to know what you are like because you've revealed yourself to us in your word. And I pray that as we look at these verses, we wouldn't just simply have a better grasp of uh, this passage at the end of it, but rather we would have heard from you. You would speak to each of us. In Jesus' name, Amen. Now we said at Morden Road before that ours is, in one sense, a great generation, because it's a generation where the individual is cherished, where we're given the all clear to value people, to even accept and, and value ourselves. Yet the danger then is that that morphs into maybe a society where it's where it's increasingly okay to be narcissistic. So we're the selfie generation. We're a generation of photo bombers. We're a, a people for whom it is far too easily all about us. Maybe even a generation where perhaps scarily newly elected leaders of large powerful countries show this in, in shocking technicolour. The diagnosis of the Bible is that fundamentally our, our loves are distorted and skewed. You see, like our generous overflowing creator who, who fundamentally is love at the core of his Trinitarian being, he loves, well, so we're a people who are made to love. That is, that is largely at the heart of who we are. But we've walked out on God. And so rather than he being at the centre and us loving him and loving one another as we were made to, now we are at the centre. So I'm at the centre of my world and you're at the centre of your world and God is out the picture, which, which means easily love then becomes about what you can get instead of what you can give. Our loves are distorted and skewed. We live in a world confused about love without God in the picture. We're, we're not really sure whose definition we're working from. Let me just give you a slightly silly example. Um, if you've ever had the misfortune of having to switch channels because a programme called Celebrity Love Island is up next, then maybe you will know something of what I mean. According to Wikipedia, it's a dating reality TV show where couples hook up throughout the series and, and people are evicted week by week by week as someone hooks up with someone else, etc, 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 until finally you're left with two people and they each end up with uh, £50,000. Now, of course, it's, it's not actually Celebrity Love Island. It's on an island, but they're not really celebrities and it's clearly lust rather than love. And, and yet, but people you might have seen on TV once, Lust Island, I guess has less of a ring to it. And it's a game, but in microcosm it asks that bigger question that society is grappling and struggling with. What is love about? Well, where self is so clearly centre stage, when, when someone stops satisfying you for whatever reason, whether it's a friend or a spouse or whatever, or the trend is you find someone else. Someone who will annoy you less. Someone who will show more interest. Someone who, who won't be as hard work. Someone who attracts you more, or whatever it is. 
then on to the next person, and the next person, and the next person. It's Celebrity Love Island. It, it's our culture. It's, it's us. And so the start question is, what is love about? What you can get. Is love self-serving? How do we define love? I guess if we'd describe ourselves as Christians here this morning, we, we know the answer to that. And so perhaps a better question for us, and it's a convicting one, is well, how much have my loves become about what I can get rather than how I can serve, what I can give? So as we come to this passage for this morning, I think we'll find that it fundamentally helps us as as Paul speaks to this church about how they are to treat each other, it, it helps us again to get our definition of love slightly more sorted, slightly more in line with that which God would be pleased with. Before we dive in though, let me just um, sweep over the verses a couple of times just to try and get our bearings to see how this passage works. Uh, two things to point out to you. The first one then is the shape of the passage. And, and that is the section begins with how to live in order to please God, as in fact they are doing. But then the passage is all about how you relate to other people. Which is striking, isn't it? You see the point? It's not just that we live the sort of life that pleases God and shut everybody else out. He's not just talking about religious type stuff here. It's the nitty-gritty, messy, hard work of daily relationships. Isn't that striking? It's a given that we're going to be interacting with other people, and it's a given that how we interact with other people actually matters if we want to live a life that pleases God. We can't divorce the two. And so what we'll see, the first half, essentially he's talking about um, love within a sort of sexual arena, and then the second bit as well, how we relate to each other in terms of friendships. But it means we can't divide our lives off into little compartments and segments. We can't say this is the God bit over here, but the other people relational bit. Those two don't actually meet or matter. It doesn't work like that. Paul says we can't do that. If you want to live a life that pleases God, then how you relate to people really matters. So that's the first thing, the shape of the passage. The, the second, I think he sets the tone because he wants to encourage them. I find it's quite striking. If you look at verse 1 and verse 10, let me read verse 1 and and 10 for us. Verse 1, as for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God as in fact you're living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. And then verse 10, and in fact you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia, yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. I think we can be pretty poor at this, but Paul wants to encourage them. He wants to point out the bits where they're doing really well, and yet... He will challenge them, and he will urge them to do so more and more. There are things they can improve on, but he does just hone in on where they're doing good stuff. And he wants to encourage them to keep going. We'll think more about that in a bit, but let's jump into the verses. Verses 1 to 8, firstly. If you're a note taker, then there's a heading for you on the screen there. Verse 1 to 8, live a holy life. We live in a sex-obsessed society. Listen to this from C.S. Lewis. It's a lengthy quote, but it's helpful. He's speaking about the culture's relationship with sex. He says, they tell you sex has become a mess because it's being hushed up. 
But for the last 20 years or so, it's not been. It's been chattered about all day long, yet it is still a mess. If hushing it up had been the cause of the trouble, ventilation would have set it right, but it's not. Modern people are always saying sex is nothing to be ashamed of. They may mean two things. They may mean, firstly, there's nothing to be ashamed of it in the fact that the human race reproduces itself in a certain way, nor in the fact that it gives pleasure. If they mean that, they are right. Christianity does the same. But of course, when people say sex is nothing to be ashamed of, they mean a second way. The state into which the sexual instinct has now got is nothing to be ashamed of. And if they mean that, I think they're wrong, says C.S. Lewis. There is nothing to be ashamed of in enjoying your food, but there would be everything to be ashamed of if half the world made food the main interest of their lives and spent their time looking at pictures of food and dribbling and smacking their lips. I mean, maybe with Instagram we do now, but anyway. There are people, people who want to keep our sex instinct inflamed in order to make money out of us because a man with an obsession is a man with very little sales resistance. 1944. Can you imagine what he would have written today? With the proliferation of pornography. With the way sex is used to market pretty much everything. With the rise of sexting. Again and again and again, etc., etc., etc. I take it he's right. Our present preoccupation with sex is not a sign of societal health. But we need to grasp that that the reality and the mess and the sexual chaos of our society is actually nothing new. Look at the norms into which Paul was writing in Thessalonica and you will find very similar ideas, very similar patterns. It was a culture and they were immersed in sex. Prostitution was a prominent way of their religious life, the worship of their pagan gods. They would use temple prostitutes. But more than that, it was just the moral climate in the Roman emperor. Roman Empire, sorry. Again, another quote for you. Immorality was a way of life, and thanks to slavery, people had the leisure time to indulge in the latest pleasures. The Christian message of holy living was, not new, was new to that culture, and it was not easy for these young believers to fight the temptations around them. Or Demonstines, the Greek statesman. We have courtesans for the sake of pleasure. We have concubines for the sake of daily cohabitation. We have wives for the purpose of having children legitimately and of having a faithful guardian of our household affairs. Well, William Barclay, the biblical commentator, says, in Rome, for the first 520 years of the Republic, there had not been one single divorce. But now, under the empire, as it's been put, divorce was a matter of impulse. Women were married to be divorced and divorced to be married. In Rome, the years were identified by the names of the consuls, but it was said that fashionable ladies identified the years by the names of their husbands. Juvenile quotes an instance of a woman who had eight husbands in five years. Morality was dead. The reality and mess and sexual chaos of our society is nothing new. So just imagine becoming a believer immersed in that kind of culture, in that kind of framework, swimming in that kind of sea. It's not far off from becoming a believer in our culture. How is their new relationship with the Lord to affect their relationship with others, and especially in this first half of the chapter, their behavior in the area of sex? Let me read the verses again. For you know the instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It's God's will you should be sanctified. 
that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honourable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who don't know God. And that in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. You see, these things matter. It's not just Paul with his prudish ideas. He says they come from the Lord Jesus, verse 2. And more than that, verse 8, if you reject them, you reject God himself, who by his spirit is living in them. Paul says you can't just take or leave this. This matters. I think there are three aspects that he highlights for them in these verses. The first one is that they are to avoid Avoid sexual immorality, verse 3. And we need to start off with some definitions. Sexual immorality is the the porneia word in Greek. It's often misunderstood, but essentially it means sexual activity, any sexual activity outside of a heterosexual marriage relationship. There might be pre-marriage. There might be adultery. There might be homosexual sex or anything else. And in fact, all that kind of sex would have been very common in Thessalonica. The word from Paul for them is avoid. Avoid it. What does avoid mean? It means avoid. But it's more than simply the call to avoid calories because you're on a diet or or coffee because you're on a detox. This is is the lighthouse. The lighthouse saying, steer clear, avoid this place, avoid these rocks, stay away. If you come here, you will die. Avoid. Avoid. It doesn't say avoid sex. No, the Bible never says that. The Bible says that sex is good. The Bible is pro-sex, but sex in the way that God intended it to be. But like any sin, we, we take God's gifts and we use them as we want to use them and, and then get burnt by them. Sex was intended for marriage, and in the wrong place, it's, it damages us. It's like water. Imagine you're on holiday Imagine it's beautiful, you're sat in the blazing sun, you're there reading your Kindle by the pool, you've got a glass of ice-cold water next to you. And water is lovely at that point, water is refreshing and life-giving. In a glass or in a pool, it is perfect. But in your Kindle, it is not. Kindle in the swimming pool, that's a mistake, that's bad news. And so like water, in the right context, sex is beautiful. In the wrong context, it is damaging, and it ruins things. And so for the first verb from Paul, then, is avoid. For these young Christians immersed in a society of sex, he says to them, he says to us, avoid. Don't flirt with it, don't play around with it, don't toy with it, avoid it. The second one is learn. Have a look at verse 4. Lots of discussion about verse 4, quite what it means. Um, I'll be brief here. Literally, the verse says to the Christian, is to learn how to possess their own vessel. And there are two basic options as to what it means. I think we get one in our text, actually, and one in the footnote. So our um, latest NIV translation very much helps us with that. Uh, The first one is learn how to control your own body with its sexual passions and its desires. 
That is, our own bodies are the vessels that we're to learn how to possess, to control. It's a verse about self-control, if you take it that way. The second one, and I think I probably slightly lean towards this one, is it's learn how to acquire a spouse, a wife or a husband, and, and to live with one's spouse in the sort of sanctity of marriage. So it's a verse about finding a godly spouse with whom you can live and thrive and serve. I think we get that in our footnotes. I think it's that way around. Regardless, though, whether it's option A or it's option B for verse 4, the outworking is pretty much the same. We, we learn purity. We learn what it means to be holy and honourable. Whether that's in the marriage relationship or, or not in the marriage relationship. And to the mess and the chaos of their society, Paul says do it differently. Be holy. Be honourable. Verse 4. Holy, think different, distinctive. Honour, think precious and esteemed. Not in self-centred, passionate lusts, but learn to be different. If you're married, then surely these verses say to us, marriage is not just a convenience or a, or a means of power or a position or, or an excuse for sex even, as was so common and can be so common. But for the Christian, it's a selfless, lifelong commitment of two people. It's not the selfish question of, well, what can I get out of this? What's in this for me? Am I being served here? But rather it's, how can I love? How can I serve? How can I pour myself out for my spouse? And then in verse 5, do you see the reason why he says that? It's the difference between the Christian and the pagan, as he puts it. We, we miss it, but I think it matters. It, it's all about who you know. Do you see, you know God, you know the one who made the world, you know the one who made sex, and you know why he made it. And so use it properly. You know to be different because you know the one in charge. You know what sex is for. So avoid, says Paul. Learn, says Paul. And then thirdly, don't take advantage, says Paul, verse 6. No one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. You see, the danger in a culture that is so self-seeking, where I am at the heart of it all, if it's about what I can get, if life is about me and my life is only about me, then it's so very easy to act it's natural to act in a way that doesn't think of the consequences. I don't join the dots and consider other people involved. And they become a means to an end. In fact, they become not so much a person, but a thing for me to get what I want. As you engage and you are driven by your appetite, says Paul, you, you, you cease to treat them like a brother or sister. You're not caring about their sanctity, their status. It's become about you. It's become about your needs and your ego and you being served. Stop it, says Paul. That might be the culture around you where people take advantage of each other, but, but not in church, not in the family of God's people. They're brothers and sisters. And yet they're already good at this, verse 1. To live 
in order to please God as in fact you are living. Which is interesting, isn't it? You know, they're already good at these things. But Paul is pressing in. And I find that a challenge because I think it is so easy to be complacent in this stuff. Maybe you've been a Christian for a few years, maybe decades, and it's as if Paul is urging them, don't be satisfied with where you are. Don't be satisfied with your holiness. Don't be content with your progress. Don't take your foot off the accelerator and just freewheel. You might already be okay at it in your mind. But Paul says more and more. Why? Well, when we put down, put down the defences just for a second, the temptation is always there to entertain that lust. I don't know what that means for you in your context. Negatively, it's going to mean being careful and guarded to avoid those temptations, those situations, those people, those environments, those websites, those, those channels that aren't good for us. In a room like this with all kinds of different people, we will have all kinds of different weaknesses, different tendencies, different temptations. But positively, it's going to mean not being satisfied with yourself. How can you, how can you grow in holiness in this area? How can you do this more and more? You're not immune. Working out what it means to, to avoid, to learn, to not take advantage Hey, here's one. Maybe, maybe home groups this week split into to single-sex groups and kind of cut through the awkwardness and just be a bit honest about this. There's a challenge. If you've been a Christian for a while, don't, don't slip into thinking you're finished in this area. It is scary how many believers slip somewhere down the line. There's a huge question for our culture. We're confused about love and sex and relationships. And Paul has said, even if you think you're quite good at this, more and more, urge you more and more, avoid, learn, don't take advantage. And then verse 9 to 12, that the scenario changes slightly for our second point. Still on relationships, but perhaps away slightly from the more sensual or sexual arena, and more simply onto how we treat each other. What it means, perhaps, to be family together. Verse 9. Now, about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia, yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. And to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, you should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you won't be dependent on anybody. Again, we've heard already they're good at loving each other. It was part of his opening gambit to the letter. Do you remember the, the prayer in verse 3? We remember before God and Father, your, 1 verse 3, we remember before our God and Father, your, your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by Love and your endurance inspired by hope. Then Timothy has a chance to visit 3 verse 6 and he, he comes back with good news about their faith and their love. And he prayed for them too as Andrew was teaching the children. 
as we saw a couple of weeks ago, may the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. So love is a strength for them. They're good at it. But again, Paul presses in. And again, as Andrew was highlighting for the kids, to love one another is a vital phrase for us as Christians. Here is one that we cannot duck. Here is part and parcel of living the Christian life. We love each other. It comes up um, 13 times in the New Testament. It's a drumbeat. It means we ought to take note because usually when God repeats himself more than once, it's for a reason. But as well as the, quality, the quantity of mentions, it's, it's to be something of our identity badge as well as disciples. Our, our love is to set us apart. People are meant to look at the church and to see something different, attractive. Jesus says, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Because he loved them first. In all of this, what's the remedy for our lack of love? Beating ourselves up and trying a bit harder. Well, in large part, it's remembering his love for us. It's feeding upon, it's treasuring afresh. It's daily knowing that he loves us, that we are known by him. To, To redefine love in the way that God does. Seen at the cross, lived out by his son. Which means in a culture of self-love, we are so swimming against the tide all the time. And for this church, for the Thessalonians, their, their love was not simply easy love for those nearby in the holy huddle kept safe with building boarded up as the persecution's coming. But verse 10, it's an extended love. You do love all God's family throughout Macedonia. He doesn't say how that is. We don't know, probably through hospitality, possibly through giving. But whatever, it it costs them to love. That they went without so that others could go with. Which seems appropriate on Remembrance Day. But then the next step in the chain is interesting in verse 11. Do you see it? How do we get from verse 10 to verse 11. What's going on? Is Paul's attention just kind of waning slightly or off on another tangent? I don't think so. I think life is linked up. And so because they love one another, well, that means, therefore, they are to live a quiet life and, therefore, to mind your own business and, therefore, to to work with your hands. Because you love each other, do verse 11. Why are they being told this? The quiet life idea seems to be perhaps not being frantic and manic and and panic-filled, as it seems some of them might have been, but rather a more sort of restful and measured. Maybe there's a critical, ambitious one-upmanship going on in the church. Maybe there's this wild excitement about Jesus returning. You get these kind of ideas and themes developing in the second letter to the Thessalonians, 2 Thess 3 and verse 10. And Paul says, we command you, brothers and sisters, to keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teaching you receive from us. We hear that some among you are idle and disruptive. They're not busy, they're busybodies. Such people we command and urge 
in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and to earn the food they eat. And as for you, brothers and sisters, never tire of doing what is good. It may be that they already thought Jesus had come back. And because he's come back or he's about to come back, on the one hand, there's this franticness about the imminence of his arrival. And on the other hand, we can't be bothered to work. It's not worth it. So you get these idle freeloaders. But do you see the practical point at the heart of it? Our, our lives are joined up. If you love people, if you love people, you will consider the impact that your life has upon them, that your behaviour has upon those around you. If you love them as far as you can, you will not be a burden to them. You will not be adding to their load. You will not be making life more difficult for them. And so, verse 12, your daily life will win the respect of outsiders and you'll not be dependent on anybody. You see, Paul says Jesus was right. If you love each other, then the world will see that you are mine. The world will see the difference that Jesus makes to us. Is it just a weird hobby that you do on a Sunday? Or does it actually impact the, the reality of day-to-day -day living? As people look at our lives, they respect what they see, they respect that we're not scrounging off others, they see that we're not wanting to be a burden to others, but we're loving them. Do they see the difference that Jesus makes? As Paul had with them, Notice the parallels. Paul had brought the gospel to them and worked hard not to be a burden. And so now they have the gospel. They are to work hard and not be a burden. But it's a striking way to end. that The love that we have for each other as, as believers is not just us kind of navel-gazing and fiddling with our belly buttons, but actually it makes a difference to the world looking in at the community of believers. Paul knows that the mission of the church is all joined up, that... East Oxford, Oxford and the world see the difference that Christ makes to us. Our mission is not simply a mission of, of words, but lives that adorn those words. Which means in a society of self, we have such an opportunity to stick out like a sore thumb. Because we treat people differently. Because we're willing to sacrifice self as Jesus did. So verse 1, how do you live a life in order to please God? Well, Paul says it's all about others. He says, live a holy life and do it more and more. Know that sex is created for a purpose and a place and therefore avoid and learn and don't take advantage. But as well as living a holy life, secondly, love each other and do it more and more and more. Because people are watching because the cynical world is looking in and seeing whether the truth of what we say actually trickles down into our relationships and how we treat other people. And so let's pray. Our Father, at root, we, we long that the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus would, would increasingly shape us.
and shape how we treat other people. Thank you for your gracious, kind, overflowing love for us. Would you work in us, please, and among us, that we might love each other as we ought, that we might treat each other as we ought, and that as a cynical world looks in, we long that our daily life would win the respect of outsiders. We pray that we wouldn't just be a people who who speak of Christ and speak of his love, but show it through how we live. In his name we pray. Amen.